Hello and welcome everyone. I am Jake Wurzak and this is Masters of Moments. This podcast features conversations with the top entrepreneurs and business leaders around hospitality, real estate, investing, and company building. We explore the ideas, strategies, and approaches that brought them to where they are today. Hear the insights, behind the scenes secrets, and methods you can't find anywhere else. This podcast is for you if you are a seasoned investor, an upstart entrepreneur, or someone looking to break into the real estate and hospitality investing world. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at jwurzak on Twitter. And if you have enjoyed this show, I'd be incredibly grateful if you followed us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever podcast platform you listen to. We record on video so you can always find all of our episodes on YouTube and be sure to subscribe. Thank you so much for joining me and enjoy the show. My conversation today is with Alex Cabanas, president of Pyramid Global Hospitality. We talk about how Alex grew a 20 hotel company to 250 hotels through a series of about five or six mergers and acquisitions. We go into everything from what gives Alex energy and what is the most important thing he thinks about his role today, how hotel mergers and acquisitions actually work. We get into the weeds on that. We discuss how he runs a worldwide global team and also how he focuses on integrating teams through mergers and what he's learned throughout that entire process. Lastly, we touch on some really cool things that Alex is now doing with this big combined company, like creating his own F&B think tank platform to go out and develop concepts throughout his hotels, how he's centralizing divisions. It is a really cool conversation. Please enjoy it. My conversation today with Alex Cabanas. So I thought a great place to start would be to just get right into it. I want to get to the meat of the story. So we're like in the depths of COVID and you decide to pull off a huge merger. Do I have the timeline right? Is that like kind of like the whole hospitality world is falling apart. Everyone's thinking about how they save their businesses and their hotels. And you are thinking about how to pull off one of the largest management companies in the country and in the world. So why don't we start there? How does that happen? All right. Well, let's go right to the right to the meat, as you said. Yeah. I mean, Jake, we I mean, we all everybody who is in hospitality investing, you know, has went through that that period of time. It's it's crazy how how far away it feels right now, even as we talk about it. But as we were going through, you know, the pandemic, you know, we went from highest of highs for the organization and for Benchmark Global Hospitality, my legacy company, prior to the merger, to three months later, the lowest of lows. And at the time, you know, for us, mergers were part of what we did as a company and as CEO of the business. I've gone through five or six of them, but they were always opportunistic. They were always the right relationship, the right conversation, the right strategy, right cultural match. All those things had to fit. 
The funny thing about the pyramid merger that I often say is it was a little bit more like a blind date compared to other mergers and acquisitions I had done. Most of the other mergers and acquisitions that I'd been involved in or our team had been involved in were relationships. Somebody that we knew, somebody that was looking for a bigger platform, you know, and and so it became, you know, just the relationship. I always joke every deal starts with a good meal. You know, Benchmark and Pyramid actually really didn't know each other well. We knew of each other, of course. We didn't compete with each other that much. When we looked at the deal flow of the company, over 150 deals that when we started to look at our two pipelines, there were only two that we were both looking at at the same time, which is just a testament to a pyramid as a mainly franchise organization and benchmark as mostly independent luxury lifestyle and being very much in different spheres of the business. But the blind date turned out right. You know, we started holding hands. We went on a few dates. We talked about what we really want to accomplish. There was no question about the strategic value of, of the combination. It was really more about execution. And we set out every time because peop- a lot of people asked, well, did you do it because of the pandemic? And I'd say no and yes. Know that we didn't do it because we were distressed or because we had to because the pandemic caused so much damage that we we had to make a choice. That was not the reason. But yes, because we were thinking about the business differently in every aspect. So in a normal environment, would would that merger have, you know, have happened? Don't know. But in this abnormal environment where everybody was looking at everything upside down and sideways, it forced us to seriously consider what was the largest by far merger that we had experienced. And, you know, it's, I mean, there's lots to talk about in terms of it It worked out great, but that was really the motivation. It it wasn't COVID driven. It was just COVID environment had us thinking differently. How during COVID were you able to get into the mindset to pull off such a merger like you did? Well, similar to to what we were just talking about, Jake, is, is, you know, it definitely forced everybody into an uncomfortable place, right? So just the idea of mergers, which are complicated. I say it all the time. They're, 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 the odds of successful mergers are not in, in our favor. 70% of mergers fail to achieve objectives. This is all research I've done throughout multiple mergers and acquisitions and in my own consulting background. So the idea of it and the execution risk we knew was there. So really two two things is number one, you have to have cultural alignment. You have to be able to sit with both investors at the board level to, you know, the partners in the firm, right? And senior level and ultimately believe there's alignment to be able to execute. Because strategy is easy. The strategy was 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 very sound. Two two very substantial companies, geographic mix. European platform, franchise platform, luxury lifestyle platform, the idea of that combination it is not, it's not new either in the industry. There's plenty of larger companies who have tried to cobble together both the franchise and the independent side. The key for us was really making sure that we did not homogenize how we perform. Franchise properties are different. They need different resources and tools. And Pyramid had been exceptional at that. We benchmark were 
probably five or six franchise hotels at the time and vice versa. Pyramid had five or six independent hotels. So a, a huge mantra of, and it's still to this day, is centers of excellence. We're not going to create average mediocrity, right? We can't do everything the same. And if that requires duplicate services or duplicate people in certain positions, we're going to invest in those duplications. A lot of times mergers are about synergies. Not that ours wasn't about synergies, but we did not want to homogenize what we were great at. And we even said to ourselves, what made us great and made us get here shouldn't be diluted by us coming together. But you add financial benefit of the balance sheets being combined, investor platform being combined, the owner relationships being combined, the talent resources in a capital constrained, talent constrained, <laughs> really difficult environment. It's kind of like, you know, we're, we're in a really, really rough, rough waters in the middle of COVID. And we're about to get a bigger boat with bigger oars and a bigger engine to get through it. Well, let's make sure that we do it right. So it wasn't without a lot of trepidation. And it wasn't that all of a sudden the water became smooth. We just had a bigger, a bigger boat and a bigger engine to be able to handle it. And the focus became from day one, you know, we're now 18 months into it on execution, right? We have to execute it right. What was it about the pyramid portfolio that interested you? Because when I look at the benchmark portfolio originally, I'd say, wow, this is an amazing collection of independent hotels. They're all very unique. What was it about their portfolio where you said, hey, I want to have some more franchise properties, some potentially more commoditized type properties? And then how did you kind of reconcile that internally? Yeah. You know, the property part of it is an avenue for everything that we do for our teams, for our people, for career growth. That's what wakes me up every day, by the way. That, that's just, just to get real personal. Creating opportunities for other people to be successful is my life mission and has been since college. So the idea of going from, you know, 10, 12,000 employees to 20,000 with all that much more career opportunity and growth, between, you know, both geographically and product type, to me is a huge, huge value add. Again, in a talent constrained environment right? Where we need people who can grow their careers and go from a Hilton Garden Inn to a Turtle Bay Resort, right? And be able to develop their careers through a variety of different product types. So it wasn't the, you know, attraction of, you know, 85 Marriott's for a guy who grew up doing independent hotels, right? It was the attraction of a platform that we're never going to create. We're not going to do that. That's that's what Pyramid has known. They've known it all their lives. It's what they have done well and they've executed well. And we did a completely different business, also exceptionally well. How do we create synergies between the two, but at the same time, make sure we stay focused? The second thing I'd say about, about the portfolio was a, a full European platform, which we do not have. That, that Hamilton Hotel Partners was the group that Pyramid purchased in 2000, right, right before the pandemic in 2020. And that portfolio is in seven countries in Europe, a mix of asset management, investment advisory, and actual third-party management, which for Benchmark, we had been searching for some way to expand into another continent. We sort of did with an acquisition of, of a group called ETC Venues, which we actually just sold a couple months ago to a group out of New York called Convene. But that never really created 
that never really created the platform that we needed. We never really married the two companies. They were sisters. So the idea of a, ge- of a geographic diversity was, was huge for us. And, and the last thing I'd say is, is Pyramid as an organization, right? Pyramid Legacy versus Benchmark was much more forward in the capital market space than us with platform partnerships, actual GP LP partnerships, where as the manager, we could be more forward in, in being a part of the real estate stories that we're building without risking the management company. And that was a skill set that Pyramid definitely brought to the table. So it wasn't necessarily the, you know, the uniqueness of the portfolio. It was the uniqueness of the platform and the opportunities that's going to create for our team and our people and our investors that we otherwise wouldn't be able to do. If your life mission, your goal is to inspire others, make people feel good, train them, educate them, elevate their lives, what new things are you doing now at the combined company that you couldn't do at Benchmark, which by the way, is was a big company on its own. So I'm really curious to know, like even at that scale of the Benchmark scale, some of the things that you weren't able to do, but you are able to do now because you have so many more team members and so much more you know, capital, bigger balance sheet, whatever it is. Well, I, I'm taking this all the way down to the line level in my answer, Jake, because that, that's, what, that's what warms my heart the most. It, it is. I don't get to spend enough time on it. I'm reminded every single time I go to a property because it, it forget all, all the executive BS goes away, right? All the M&A and grow the business and, you know, all those other things, which I love. I love ringing that bell and I, I thoroughly enjoy that. That's been my career. But what really motivates me and what I love waking up to is the thought that we're, we're changing people's lives right? Through career, through education, through a caring environment of, you know, and that unfortunately doesn't exist in a lot of places. So the, 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 probably the number one, number one, most exciting thing about our merger was about a year in the making because we couldn't combine our healthcare platform until we got out of our, of our, in our, our separate individual enrollment cycles. So we just rolled out at the end of 22 for the 23 plan year, about an eight to 12% reduction in costs to our employees with an overall combined better benefit platform. That alone by far was the number one most important thing and most exciting thing to me because it touched every single person's life, right? There are plenty of our employees who could care less about what Warren and Alex are doing up here, right? Merging the company for our investors, right? They're like, what does it mean to me? What's it going to mean to my life? And when a call it a $60,000, you know, dollar salaried person gets a $3,000 savings in the middle of inflation, in the middle of healthcare costs have gone up for 10 years straight, that's massive, right? So the feedback we got from our team on that was huge. That's by far the most tangible, the most impactful because it hit every single employee. And yes, beyond that, way more training resources, way more career opportunities. I, While I don't hear a lot of them because they may happen at different levels of the organization, I'm excited every day I hear of someone that's going from a, one property to another that they otherwise would have not been able to do because either they didn't want to move far away or 
they wanted to move within the state. And now all of a sudden, instead of seven properties in Florida, we have 18 properties in Florida. So that Florida collection can share teams so much easier. You know, and I think people are, I don't know, it's interesting. I wonder wonder if people are getting more, if starting to move more towards they're willing to move or less. You know, for a long time, I think it was less. I think we might be turning the corner and people being willing to move. But in a world where people aren't as willing and certainly during COVID weren't willing, the fact that we can offer more opportunities in a geography for various people, that's phenomenal. I mean, that's just phenomenal. So all of those things, and and of course, every single employee cares the most beyond their benefits and their pay is where can I take my family on vacation? So the fact that we now handed them 250 options to be able to take their family on vacation. I mean, again, that's, that's huge. That, that creates memories and opportunity for, for a lot of our team members that would have otherwise had a lot fewer choices. Ultimately, it makes you more competitive because the hardest thing that our company faced was retention. And when we had really good people, particularly during like the COVID time, you know, potentially they were leaving. So one of the things that we've been thinking a lot about in my own company is how to train people from the bottom up to be future managers, future leaders in the company. And now at your scale, how do you think about keeping people within your company and creating a culture where they want to be at, but also educating them and inspiring them to go to the next level? Yeah. So it's, it's actually, it's a great question, Jake, because our, our, I give a tremendous amount of credit to our, our, our full people team. We actually launched at our leadership conference just a month ago, completely flipping the narrative of, you know, attract, train and retain, right? That's fairly typical. We flipped it on its head and said, retain, let's put retain first, keep the people we have, keep the people that we, that we know that are already performing, that are doing a great job. Let's train them, give them more talent, more resources, in a, in a, again, in a labor-constrained environment, in a higher-cost environment, we are going to have to hire fewer people, be able to equip them to do more, right? Not do more and burn them out, just do more, whether that's technological advances, right, or training and skills, right? Whatever that is, we need to be able to retain those people, give them more to do, right? Or create more succession planning, more sharing of resources between properties, right? And then decide, well, what else do we need to attract versus the opposite? So we've just rolled that out really on that very note is we've already got a tremendous amount of, of, of talented people. How do we focus our time and effort on loving and caring and training for them and then deciding, well, who else do we need? And we actually think it'll help us attract better for for new employees, just simply because, you know, it'll, I think it'll solidify our culture to where when people show up, they'll be like, wow, this, these teams actually, they, they seem incredibly well aligned. And that's incredibly attractive to, you know, to new employees, particularly if they're leaving a place where maybe they're not as well cared for, maybe they aren't trained as well, or they don't have the same resources for their career. So that, that's been a big focus of, of the, of the company. And even before, before all of that relaunch, there was just a lot of conversation around hiring fewer, fewer, better people and giving them more to do to therefore counterbalance that inefficiency that's just existing in our business because of labor costs and supply costs. And there's only so much rate gain we can get to make the economics of our investments work. 
So there are a lot of 20 to 50 property management companies that are going around right now and saying, hey, let us manage your hotel because Ambridge has 400 hotels or and 1,400. 1,400. <laughs> and, you know, this guy and Marriott has this many and they don't know what they're doing. They're so out of touch. So is scale and size better in the management business? And is there a point where a company is too big? Well, I'm, I'm biased in answering that, right? That's why I want your answer. Of, Let's go. Well, of course it is. Well, what, what, and we said this going back to even the, the merger and the things that we said to ourselves is we need to make sure because it wasn't about us. For us, it was not about bigger. And even in every single conversation and in every interview, we refused to tell, to, to push the stats. And I will say not everybody has done that. For us, it was about how is this going to make us a better organization for our owners, for our partners, for our employees, for our guests, and for the communities we're in. How is this going to make us better? Now, yes, scale is better for certain things, right? Buying power, quite simple, right? Certainly on the investment side, quite simple. Geographic capabilities and resources to be able to grow the business, quite simple, right? A European platform, quite simple, right? All of those things are better at scale. And even the benefit conversation we just had, well, that's a better benefit to our individual employees that we would have otherwise not accomplished had we not had scale. Where scale becomes a problem is when decision-making rolls up the organization, right? It's, it's, it all, it, it comes out about access and control, right? If we're not acting in the best interest of an owner and we're acting in our best interest, which given that we're not a franchise, right? Well, yes, some things need to be similar or the same across the portfolio. The focus of those things are the things that don't matter as much independently to each individual asset. If we don't have the right team or the right GM, I always say that nothing, no amount of corporate support makes up for the wrong general manager. I mean, it just doesn't hundred percent no matter how big you always. are. It just, it always is general manager is most important. That is a mantra of pyramid and benchmark. So we've made that consistent. And then it's really the support team that, that supports the general manager. My, my COO who sits right across the way here often says, if a general manager ever says they're waiting on the corporate office or the home office, we call it home office, we're, we're in big trouble, right? They're never allowed to say that. Now, the reality is if they ever are, they need to call me or Warren or Greg or Eric Haberman or any one of our team and we will fix it because they should never, an entrepreneurial GM should never be waiting on us to tell them what to do for their own property, right? They should be able to act. And within a 24-hour period, if they act and we don't like the decision, well, too bad. We have to live with it because they went ahead and made an action. We'd rather them make the mistake in 24 hours and respond fast to fix the issue than wait on us. And that is really corporate infrastructure, right? Because when when a small company says, well, we'll give you more attention, well, okay, well, it's just a question of whether that attention truly does add more value or not compared to all of the other benefits. And yeah, there's there's times where competitors of ours aren't necessarily paying attention or there's a revolving door or um, the perception. And this is the one I hate the most. And I know we can talk more about it. It's just the perception that people aren't accessible. 
right? Well, well, no matter how large the company was, even when I started with 22 hotels 18 years ago, the company would have never been successful, even at that time, if it was always waiting on me or Bert or, you know, or, or some senior exec to make a decision. So I find access to be, we, we as a company have talked about access, about relationship. Access isn't about decision-making. Access is about that we care and we will respond and we will be there if one of our owners or our clients feels the need for somebody at the senior level that they know or that they trust to be a part of, solu- of solving the problem. But if they're always waiting on us, forget it. We'll never get there. We'll, we'll never be able to grow the business and scale it. So when you showed up at Benchmark, however many years ago, were you always empowered with that idea and believe that? Or is that something that you had to work on and figure out over years and really teach how to push the decision-making down to your team and trust your team? Because that's a, you know, with a... You know, you were, I guess, could be called a family business, right? You worked with your dad. That's one of the huge hurdles that I've had to work to overcome. I'm sure you have similar stories in an entrepreneurial business decision-making. Yeah. Every every business can be defined in this little acronym that, that I got from a consultant named Larry Taylor, who helped our organization grow when I joined right about 2006, 7, 8, kind of through GFC. And it's belief will drive behavior, which will drive performance. And belief and behavior are, are if, you so, if you soft circle both of those, that's culture, right? I mean, that is culture in an organization. Belief system is usually, I mean, I won't say it's easy to define, but everybody, every company has a belief system. It's whether they actually behave that way. And I love sitting in those two chairs right there in my office and interviewing people and saying, why are you here? And often, very often hearing them say, well, I'm at an organization who doesn't necessarily walk the talk. And I've been here all day and I've made lots of phone calls and I hear you guys actually walk the talk. Because very few organizations, pardon my French, say, let's be assholes on our mission statement. Like they just don't, right? But it's whether the actions of the organization align with the belief system that is professed right? In every single cultural statement, everything in the back of the house, right? So that, that, that's an evolution. I will say, Jake, from the time I joined the business, the belief system was absolutely consistent. And I would say consistent with what we believe today in Pyramid Global and what Pyramid believed in before our merger and Benchmark believed in before our merger. The hard work is in the day-to-day behavior. And that I will say took, it did take time. I went through an exercise. I helped lead an exercise with a team at Benchmark when I joined about a year after that was called G2, which was not Bert to me. It wasn't my father to me. It was, what's the next generation? It's, you know, go to the book, Good to Great. It's, it's what's the, what's the, how do you sustain the founder, you know, and the transition to the next 30 years, right? Sort of in 25 to 30 year cycles, How do you sustain, how do you stimulate progress and honor what was great about the past? You know, and there's a lot of organizations and family businesses are, are typically very bad at this, right? Statistically that, you know, 50% of founder led businesses will eventually fail because the second generation can't take it on. And that is very much a story of probably I would isolate it to, you know, my dad was all about control and not dictatorial control, benevolent control, but it was his business, right? And so 
while there was the, 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 the belief system was there, the organization, because it was so small, still, you know, my dad knew what every, everything, what was going on all the time. And my currency was partnership, right? We got to grow this through investment. We got to grow this through partners. We've got to create more opportunities for our team. And while this doesn't, this doesn't happen today, 18 years later, but it was always fun to, so my dad would come in and be like, well, what, what's going on with so-and-so? And I'm like, I don't know. The organization's huge. I don't know what's, I'm not, I'm not sure. He's like, well, I just ran into them the other day and I don't know what to say to them. And I'm like, don't worry about it. They think you're Santa Claus. Just have them sit on your lap and tell you stories and they don't care. But his psyche was want this belief in wanting to know. He wants to know what Jake is doing so he can care about Jake. And I'm like, Jake doesn't care if you know what he's doing. He just cares if you came by and said hello and asked, right? But it's yep, just a different mentality. Same thing. Just a totally different mentality. So it does take time. And I, I will, if anybody listened to this, take that belief and behavior piece. You al- If you can align those two things, man, performance just goes. It just goes. Are there any specific, I mean, you know, you run a big hotel company, but you also just run a big company. So I'm curious to know if there are any behaviors that you really think thrive at the senior leadership level in the hospitality industry. And if there's one interview question that you kind of consistently use to try and figure out what that, if that person has that characteristic. I'd say, well, I'm a a huge believer in alignment. I use this little analogy of, you know, I used it with our merger. If anybody's been in an unaligned car, right, where the wheels are, you know, shimmying, well, you're still going in the direction you planned. You still have all the same people in the car. You still have the same engine, the same body, same tires, right? But something's not right. And again, if you've been in an unaligned car, you can only go so fast. You hit a speed where all of a sudden the alignment goes off and you can't keep going because you'll destroy the car and you certainly can't go faster. Well, that is that is a principle that I have I have used in in my teams and in the organization forever. If you can create that alignment, and I mean I mean emotional, psychological, and not just strategy. Strategy is easy. Everybody can sit at the table and say, "Okay, we want to go here or not here." And I want to say it's easy. It's important. But it's it's much easier to say what you do and don't want to do strategically. It's a lot harder to get a team aligned in executing that and executing it well. And what I find so, so interesting about the analogy with the unaligned car is what fixes it? Those little, little tiny weights. You're not changing much. The car's the same, the people are the same, the body's the same, tires the same, wheels are the same. You're just adding this little touch. And that little t- touch I'll 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 put out there is, is, is vulnerability and transparency. If you're, if you have a team that can, that can raise their hand when they screw up and, and ask for help and be accountable to themselves, willing to take themselves perhaps a little less seriously. Uh, I tell my team, if you have two people on your team, not your direct reports, it can be, but preferably not your direct reports that at any point in time can walk in your office and say, Boy, you really, you really screwed that up. Or here's what people are saying about you behind the scenes. 
then you have liquid gold in terms of being able to adjust your personality. But that comes with vulnerability because I know a lot of people who get that feedback and don't do anything different. And I've had those moments in my life where I get that feedback and I don't do anything different. But if you really create a trusting environment where you can be vulnerable, you know, it, 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 it reduces the human condition of selfishness, control, ego, right? All of those things that we all say, check your ego at the door. Well, that's hard. It's hard. And I've been around a lot of egos and it's hard. And if you find someone that can check that and truly be open to a well-functioning and healthy team, it is by far the most important. So I typically ask about team environment. How do you create alignment among your team, right? Tell me- Who in your life can come into your office and tell you how it is? Greg Champion, who's right over there, or my chief operating officer, who, yes, it's hard when you're the CEO, but you know, we're at the top, you have to pick somebody who can report to you. But he and I joke often, he is, he, he is a, he is an overdoer and I am an overthinker. He, he is an executor. He's an operator, could never do anything that I've done in 18 years. He joined me 13 years ago with Adam because he is an executor. He will get stuff done and make things move. And I tend to be an overthinker, right? A dreamer, a planner. I don't, I can get into the detail gladly. I just don't choose to. And we have really learned a lot about each other. And now, you know, it, when I have those moments and overthinking something, it's, it's actually a joke. It was a joke in our team. If we were sitting around dialoguing about something for too long, we'd all look at Greg and he'd be like, I'm done tolerating the dialogue. Let's go do this. And it was the right answer every time because he wouldn't sit there and debate. He would just sit there and listen and then just look over at Greg and he's like, are y'all done talking about this? Because this is what we should do. And then we go and we make decisions quick. But there needs to be room for both, right? There needs to be room for people to get their stuff out on the table, but there needs to be enough pace to be able to make a decision and walk out of the room aligned. So, because if you don't, if you make the decision too fast and you make it in a silo and not everybody's on board, you lose people fast. And then you're constantly asked, being asked questions. Why was that decision made? Why didn't you think about this or that? Well, if you're in the room and everybody's got their stuff out and then you make the decision, everybody knows why that decision was made. They may not agree with it, but they agree that the process was thorough enough to come to a conclusion and then they're on board. We just started going in and hitting it, but I want to kind of zoom out a little bit. And mergers and acquisitions has actually been such a huge part of your growth and your success, in addition to just being a damn good operator. And we're going to be talking about that. But maybe you can kind of talk to us about the early benchmark days coming through to now using the mergers and acquisitions as kind of a guidepost through that story. It goes back, Jake, to the to the idea of partnerships. You know, my, my currency was never control. It was how, how do we how do we benefit the business and benefit the careers of our team? Everybody wants growth, right? I mean, that's just a reality. I, I, I was listening to one of your other podcasts and somebody said, you know, growth is fuel. And you guys were both talking about growth. And it, it's true, right? You, you know, that's that is just part of what people want throughout throughout the organization in every place I've ever been. That's usually the one of the most important questions I get is where are we going next? Yeah. And to the life and career of an individual, 
that's what matters to them. And and M&A, while maybe it's not for everybody, the reality is it kind of is. Because at some point, right, at some point a founder, right, or an owner-led fam- you know, family business is going to make a choice of whether they have the wherewithal and resources to accomplish what they want to accomplish on their own or if they need to bring in some other partnership. And that is even true on the real estate side. I mean, arguably that's not M&A, but every real estate deal has a partnership. And therefore, every real estate deal is dealing with partnered acquisitions. Mergers are just a little more, well, they're a lot more complicated because of the human side of organ of bringing together multiple operating companies, right? Versus asset to asset sales, right? Or real estate to real estate sales don't have quite the same complexity. But on the operating side, look, let's see, of the five, six mergers I've done, five of the six were founder-led businesses who wanted to make, you know, the next step in the generation of the business towards the end of their career. Well, at some point, lot you, you mentioned it earlier, these, you know, 20, 30, 40 hotel management companies, at some point they're going to make that decision. And if it isn't, if it isn't family or internal succession, at some point that owner says, well, what can I do next for my team? What can I do next for the business? And of course, reap the reward of the equity they put in the business for however long a time. So at some point, M&A is kind of for everybody because you're going to have to make that jump off at some point in time. You know, for me, I was the catalyst to, to being willing to do that sooner, perhaps, than my father would have wanted to, again, because control was important to him. So what were some of the control issues in the early days that you had to navigate with him and the company that you were merging with or acquiring? And we talked about mergers, but I got to think some of them were more like acquisitions too. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Some of them were just smaller portfolios, but but no matter what, you're merging people, right? So it doesn't, you know, I'm, I'm amazed in every single transaction how much people get fixated on whether, well, was it a merger or was it an acquisition? And I'm like, forget the, okay, there's a gap definition for whether it was an acquisition or a merger. And then there's deal points of whether it was an acquisition or a merger. But the reality is you're still merging people. You're still merging cultures and systems, no matter the size and no matter the technicality of whether it was a merger or an acquisition. And frankly, if any leader sits around and says, well, it's an acquisition, that means we can just do whatever we want because we're the acquirer and they're the acquiree. You're, 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 in, for a, you're in for a really crappy combination because it doesn't really matter. You still have to respect that you bought something for a reason. You bought a platform for a reason, for somebody that was doing something well. Why, why would you just discount that as if it doesn't really matter and you're just buying a set of contracts? So we have to think about the business that way and think about, you know, the acquisitions. But, you know, control's an interesting beast, right? We all, we're all, look, we're, we're all subject to, I am as well, of how much control, you know, I want in, in any given role I have in the business. My, one of my favorite, fa- I would, you know, you know, you know those moments when you, when you have something come out of your mouth for the first time, you're like, ooh, that was good, right? Yeah. 
I said this. Write to, that down. I said this to a a reservations, a two reservations agents here in our central reservation office for our independent portfolio. They're amazing. They're just amazing. And we were at a charity event and they were asking about the merger and kind of how it's going and how's your new role and must be different, all this other stuff. And I know them well enough that they were asking intimate questions. And I said to them both, you know what? My level of control or title does nothing for your two careers. And they looked at me like, really? Like, you mean that? I'm like, well, it came out of my mouth. So yeah, (laughs) I mean it. But, you know, and I just, I have repeated that my own quote for, for multiple times, because that's so true. If my passion, right. Therefore, if my, my, my mission in life is create opportunities for other people to be successful and my own ego and level of desire to control something gets in the way of that, that's stupid, but it, but it happens. I mean, it happens and I've had, I've had it happen to me. I mean, even today where the business is just bigger, it doesn't feel as comfortable but nobody at the line level gives a crap about my comfort. Like they really don't care about my comfort, right? They care about their career. They care about the benefits we gave them. They care about all the other things we talked about that have improved their lives. And so I think there's a, there's a reality in that, that, that control can be a governor on organizations at, you know, when the top level wants to control things or at any level, frankly, it could be a department head at a, at a property, right? Who isn't raising up their team to learn the craft. In your experience, where have some of the deals that you've done on the merger and acquisition side gone wrong or sideways? Or or what was it that you learned from that you're like, yeah, we're never going to make that mistake again? So a couple things, and, and not necessarily, you know, big execution mistakes, <laughs> I mean, look, ego is a big one, and and I will I will say that that goes, and I'm I'm just as guilty, kind of ego and judgment, right? People looking at the other side and saying, you know, we really do that better, and it becomes competitive, right? And it becomes, you know, a judging of the other side versus seek first to understand. And I would always remind people. In one of our mergers where we were acquiring a generally smaller company, we were 40 hotels. The other company was 18 hotels. And every time, you know, one of my team would say, I can't believe they're doing it that way. And I was like, guys, remember how we did it when we were 18 hotels. Okay. Take yourself back. And some people were there. Some of these, some of these, my senior team who were tenured were there. And they're like, yeah, no, you're probably right. But you have to, you have to not, you have to judge based on the perspective of the other company and what, what their paradigm was. And that's hard. People don't, I mean, people don't naturally do that. You have to remind them, you have to train them. You have to be in that moment. I don't naturally do that. I have to remind myself, I have to look at things objectively and be able to understand why an organization is behaving a certain way versus judging the behavior as if I would never do that in my organization. Well. How about you ask why, right? I remember this is a fun story. I remember in going through merging with with Pyramid and Warren and I doing in our partnership and Warren just can't stand long meetings, just can't stand them. And I'm just thinking of myself and, and like to the point of too short and I can't stand long meetings either, but it's like the difference in something wanting to be 30 minutes versus something wanting to be an hour. Well, come to find out when I asked more questions and started to understand the business and understand the company, 
their entire executive team used to get together. Now, this was when they were much smaller. Every Monday for eight hours, every Monday for eight hours and review the detail of every single property. Well, no wonder Warren hates long meetings because he ate them for 20 years, right? So I appreciated that he just can't, he just can't, he's, he just wanted to get so far away from, from that because it, it did slow the organization down. So I, I appreciated it more. When you, when you find out a little bit more about why someone behaves a certain way and you understand the objective fact, it just, it, it doesn't mean you, you, you're going to agree. It just means you'll judge it a little less. So Warren is your partner and have you given his experience with the meetings? Have you learned anything from him related to how he ran his business from a very high level, how he stays in touch that you've now applied in how you run the business together or how you personally operate? Yeah, but I th- it's a, both of us have learned, you know, learn, iron sharpens iron. I'm a big believer in that. And and you have to be able, be able to rub together to be able to sharpen each other. So I have certainly, I mean, he's learned to accept a little bit longer meeting right? and, and be willing to let me facilitate that. I've certainly become more sensitive to my favorite, one of my favorite quotes of him is time in, dollar out, right? There's only so much time we have. There's only so much resource we have. And what is the time in, I like to say value out because it may not always be dollar, right? But time in, value out, there, our time is very precious. He has preached, we've both been very aligned in preaching a balance in the company and making sure that we are truly allowing our team to have a balanced life and putting that into practice. This is probably the most, well, this is definitely the most balanced in terms of work, right? True hardcore work and the balance of life, right? And the company and my life and his and others than I've ever had. Part of that I think is just scale, right? Is that, well, there's just more people to, and more leadership to therefore take things on. Part of it is certainly the way we planned. We planned for a two budget season merger. We knew there was no way we were gonna get this done fast. So we planned for a two budget season merger, which I won't say lowered everybody's blood pressure because if any of our team listens to this, they'll call bullshit. (laughs) But there were definitely some things that we pushed faster than we maybe should have. But in general, I think that we balanced it better because we we gave ourselves the cushion and said, you know what, we don't need to do this all within one budget cycle. It'll just be too much interruption. So this year actually is all about, and then everybody who will listen to this should believe it because we said it a month ago, nothing new. Like we're going to just slow everything new and focus on tightening up everything that we had to combine to make sure it's executing on all cylinders. So when we hit 24 budget season, we're, we're truly kind of one combined system and company. We're already there culturally almost, but I'd say we're probably 80% of the way there as an overall company. That last little 20%, which is the hardest, right? Is just needs lots of tweaking. So we've just said nothing, nothing major, nothing new. Let's just focus on execution. 
the hotel business is so hard and you don't know it until you've lived it. And growing the business is actually even harder. And it's a not a get rich quick scheme. It's a long game. And that's the game we all chose. That's a game we're playing. But I think a lot of people are really struggling right now from a management company standpoint. If they're trying to grow their management company, they can either do it three ways. By making investments, that costs money, that's time. They can try and do it by getting third-party management contracts, onesies, twosies, or they can do a merger and acquisition. At, at what Did you realize at some point that you're like, I can't grow and I can't scale to the level I want to be by just hiring a bunch of business development guys and sending them out to the world and trying to get these one-off management contracts? Did you make an actual decision and said, no, the way that we want to grow is through acquiring or merging with other platforms and immediately gain size and scale? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was actually the, it, it goes back to the origins of me even joining the business because I wasn't going to be in the family business. That was not the way I grew up. It was never a conversation. But while in business school and working in consulting, I, I spent some time with the business really just to understand more about it, not to plan to join it. And part of that story was we need a broader set of growth opportunities. We need a better capital, better capital resources. We had a private equity partnership that didn't really add value in the late 90s, early 2000s before I joined the business. So part of it was we need capital partnerships to be able to help grow the real estate side because you know when you're when you're a management only business you cannot bet the balance sheet of the management company on real estate you'll kill it in your situation Jake you can you can own the real estate and be a manager right and can and you're well while you may or may not be as good right as a full on third party manager the 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 capital and the risk reward is aligned right if you take management and do the opposite, you'll kill the business. So we had to have partnerships because our family didn't have the wherewithal to do it ourselves. We need to have capital partnerships. We need to continue to do the third-party growth side, and we need to look at M&A. And so from the beginning, it was we, we need to continue to explore all of those in order to grow the business. Now, you know, 18 years ago, did I think we'd go from 22 hotels to 250? No. No. In fact, if someone would have told me that, I'd be like, that sounds nuts. I don't, I don't know that I want to do that. But, you know, you, you grow a little bit at a time and, you know, all of a sudden the next opportunity comes. And it was always, it was always about opportunity and, and the right partnerships. It was never about we'll just be bigger because we need to be bigger. It was never, it's never been about that. It's always been about what's the value proposition? What can this provide for our owners that we otherwise couldn't do. And, and by far for anybody considering any kind of partnership, it, it was about partnership alignment. That is, it's a non-negotiable. It is a non-negotiable. By the way, it doesn't mean it's not hard. It's hard. I joke, it's like marriage counseling. I was often the marriage counselor in between my dad and all these other deals, right? As we did these, but but it's it's worthy if you spend the time and it can be but it can be risky if you don't have you know aligned partnerships it can be and there's but there's tons of examples of unaligned MA that's happened in our business 100% but at the end of the day throughout all this MA 
you are still the guy. You know, you are still running benchmark. Now you're running pyramid with Warren. So how did you find throughout those five or six mergers and acquisitions to handle the leadership of the business? Like, was there a, a tail and eventually there's like an earnout? Like, like, how does that work? Because you were the guy the whole way through. There's not someone else in your role that is coming in through a merger and acquisition. It is a lot of partnership, you know, and, and, and bringing people together, right. And, and having alignment at the top. I mean, that's, it's the easiest way to say it for, for, for whatever reason, God blessed me with a willingness to, to, to partner. And there are many times that I scream at him. I'm like, what are you doing? This is nuts, right? It's just, it's crazy, right? Because personalities get in the way, emotions get in the way, control gets in the way. And you have to, I, I've, I've, I'm, I'm fortunate to have a, a great psychologist, executive coach, a great writing executive coach, a, my favorite person in the whole wide world being my wife and two wonderful dogs at home and two boys. They actually, my two boys don't, don't really re- reduce my stress at all. But all of that, right, and, and probably one of the one of the greatest qualities of managing partnerships is is to be able to understand people objectively and understand how to create alignment. And I'm I'm fortunate, you know, it's easy to say it in hindsight. In the moment, it's not easy, but fortunate to be a part of a lot of great partnerships of just bringing people together. And so that's always been enjoyable. What's the next one? I don't know. I don't know. Never knew what the next one was after the last one. All right. So I, I want to talk about how you structure a management company, acquisition, merger, whatever it is. Maybe you can like break down if it's like buying a small business, do you go out and get an SBA loan? Do you have to pony up cash in your balance sheet? How, how does it work? What are the multiples? Kind of give me the whole playbook. Every, every, you know, every, every deal is structured has, it has different elements of structure for sure. And there's been, I, I used to keep track, you know, the, over a five year period of time from maybe call it 2012, 13 to, you know, 17, 18, there were probably 60 different MA transactions in our business. I, you know, fast forward probably 80, right? When you, when you really start, you know, adding them all up. So there's been a lot, right? And ours are in the third-party management space. Of course, there's been tons of brand acquisitions, brand acquisitions like a, like a Kimpton or, you know, Viceroy just recently being acquired. Those are very, very different than, than a third-party management side. And so the multiples are, are also different lower on the third party management side. And that varies from, you know, call it a six X to a 12 X, depending on the size of the business, security, a contract pipeline for growth, right? Like a small business, right? Well, you're, you're looking for a consistency and, and even same as a real estate deal, you're looking for a consistent pattern of earnings and you're looking for what the value add can be on a, on a forward basis. And all of those, every single deal is structured differently between, you know, probably three components between cash earn out and, and, and equity. If, if there's a platform buy where, 
where the seller really wants to be part of the combined business, that's harder to do because you're valuing both businesses. But if you do it enough times, you know, that you can, you can kind of get to reasonable private valuation to where you know what you're giving shares out at. But those are, those are more rare. Usually the first two components of cash and some sort of an earnout are the easier way to do it. The harder way, and it depends on the size of the, of the portfolio, right? M- most recent portfolio, we, we, we did some shares simply because of the, the strategic nature of the portfolio. And by the way, for all the operators that just uh, ordered a Ferrari, Alex is talking about six to twelve x EBITDA, right? Not revenue. EBITDA, <laughs> EBITDA okay. We're not in the so like, we're definitely not. Don't get too business. excited here. So six to twelve times EBITDA, you know, maybe that's the range. But how how do you think about the contracts? Because definitely a lot of people get concerned about acquiring a management company and then. Couple hotels get sold. A couple of hotels say, "Hey, we don't like this new company." How do you mitigate that risk in your experience? Again, it's part of the deal structure. It's part of the due diligence and understanding the churn in any given portfolio. Because it's not just what properties. Because we have properties that depart on sale, or you know, and 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 so there's a natural churn to the business. The smaller the portfolio, the more penalizing that churn could be particularly if it's negative. So you're looking at history. You know, you're looking at a portfolio that might've started at 20 hotels five years ago and is 40 now, but along the way they added three and lost one or added five and lost three. And there's just a pattern you can kind of watch throughout. And hopefully there's a, there's a natural skill set and a natural capability of knowing that that pipeline is going to continue to grow, but you are looking at contract value. And, and, but I, I would say, more more than the 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 legal reality of the HMA it's really the relationship pipeline and execution history of the team because anybody could look at pyramid's HMA portfolio and say well there's x amount that are going to expire year after year after year well okay well how about you look at the last 10 years of the business because we naturally grew organically or and or inorganically through M&A to these various milestones. So you're, you're looking at, a, at it very much the same way as, as, as any other piece of business. It's just the, the reality of contracts is, is I mean, you're, yes, you're buying, a, you're buying a team, you're not just buying contracts, but the, the, real, you know, the real financial collateral is the fee base. But if you don't have a team delivering that fee base, and that doesn't really matter. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because it goes back to your concept on partnership, and you're really looking at the people that are also coming along with this merger to get more comfortable with the value of the price that you're paying or that you're investing in that deal. Well, in, mo- in most cases, Jake, right, the, work, the management company has to go to the owner in most cases to get consent. Not all cases, but in most cases, they have to go and get consent. So if I'm selling my company and you're my owner, you're going to want to know, you know, well, well, who's, who's buying you and what are they going to do with the team? And what's going to happen to John, who's my day-to-day guy who I love, right? And my GM, they're going to want to know, you know, the story. So there's a lot of communication. I mean, it's, it's not something we've touched on a lot. There's a ton of communication ahead of time. And in every circumstance, the last thing that we ever wanted to do was for 
important people in the combined organizations to hear about the merger through rumor or gossip or lack of information. Because there's a phase where you have to do it all confidentially. And then there's a phase where you're making a deal and you want, and we, we called every, every single owner got a personal phone call. Every single owner got a deck that we shared as to how we're doing each deal. Every single GM knew before their owner knew, right? So GMs got the information first because they're at the tip of the spear and then they could share with their teams. So before any press release or any of that kind of, you know, great hurrah, right? When you close and you're all excited and you get to do the press interviews, you've had weeks of communication of all the constituents that matter because we don't want them to find out by a press release. Fortunately, we're a pub- we're not public, so we can afford to do that. But I, I, I don't know. I rue the day that maybe I have to do one of these as a public company because I wouldn't want to, I just couldn't do it that way. How can you not tell your clients? I mean, it's just, but in a public environment, you can't. I mean, some of the franchises don't tell us anything and then uh, impose something on us. So you just have to get to that level, Alex. That's maybe what's next for you. I don't know. I don't think so. I hope not. I might have them have a lobotomy if that's the case. So I, I don't know. I, I kind of draw a ton of energy from independent and lifestyle hotels because there's just so many levers that you can pull. There's so many ways to impact your guests, your team members, how do you reconcile that now that you have such a big portfolio of independent and franchise hotels? And how are you collaborating between both sides, if at all, to maybe add some of that lifestyle angle to the other side? And then how are they educating the lifestyle group on certain things that they didn't think about? Yeah, no, there's actually a, a lot of that happening organically making sure that we don't force it. Cause again, the centers of excellence and the specificity of what we do by asset type matters. Right. But I'll go back to my, my mission in life. I don't really care where any of our employees are working or how creative or let or less, less creative it is. They're making an impact every day on every person that stays, no matter if they want a comfortable bed shower and in and out experience, or they want a, you know, a, a luxury, resort experience on a vacation. We're still helping people accomplish something, right? So I love that value proposition regardless. And I'm amazed at the cool stories that come from the most predictable properties, right? I mean, there is there is still amazing stories that come out of, of our properties. And that's that's been a big part. It was a big part of Benchmark, maybe a little less at Pyramid, but telling the stories is a huge part of our culture and really accentuating those service stories, those be the difference moments, right? It, it's it's rocket fuel because it, it really just, I mean, it grounds me in the reality of what we do every day, right? That, that that's what we're doing. That's what our employees are doing. So I love seeing those stories come and they're not always, they're, they're coming from all over the place, Right. They're coming from the Doubletree in downtown New York and the Hilton Garden Inn in Seattle and, you know, and La Cantera and Turtle Bay, right? They're, they're coming from all over the place. And so there's, there's always an opportunity to do something unique. And like you said, right, our, our, our franchise properties that perhaps operated, you know, by, by the franchise rules, regs or whatever that we know less about, we're willing, we're willing to push and test the hell out of all that stuff, right? So, so a lot of our franchise properties are like, we need more of that marketing skill or that service skill 
and we're able to push the envelope and still also be having a great relationship with our franchise partners as well. Because look, the, the, the reality is we're, we're a very large franchise partner. And so how can we be the best franchise partner? Well, I think the way we're the best franchise partner is by thinking what's in the best interest of owner and being willing to have the conversation with the franchise, especially when we run 70 independent hotels, we know how this works, right? And we know what works and what doesn't. So how can we create a more nimble relationship with the franchise to therefore be better and better? I can guarantee you our revenue management across the portfolio is better as a result of the combination, not just because on the independent side, you have to make decisions every single day across all these different channels, but also because we now understand the franchise side all that much better because there's huge demand, right? That comes through those channels, demands that we, that we otherwise ne would never see as an independent. So there's no question. We're just learning more about what each side of the business does. And that's where the deuce I was talking earlier about having dual roles, right? Having roles in both, in both disciplines and having excellence in both disciplines. Well, then those people get to talk, right? They're able to talk to each other and share best practices. Benchmark was always known for great food and beverage. And I think that was probably one of the, the hallmarks of your business. And sometimes when I'm talking to a restaurant operator, they're always like, why do you operate your own food and beverage? And we like to have the control and we think we do a really good job. What have you found as some of the best ways as a hotel person to do the food and beverage side really well and to make it a distinguishing reason why someone's coming to visit that hotel, whether it's an event or a restaurant visit? It's definitely an area that we are, we want to be known for as a company. Like we, we know that that is a, an important thing to, to owners in not only driving the quality, but also driving the profitability. But, but also for us, it, it's a, it's a differentiator. It's not, it's not something that a lot of management companies do really well, meaning defining characteristics well, right? Cost per you know cover and or revenue per occupied room, truly being able to drive the local traffic, you know, and you can't do that in every hotel. I like to, I always like to say, look, you either have a, a hotel restaurant or you have an outfacing restaurant. Pick one. Doesn't mean that you're not going to do both, but you need to pick a personality. Because not every restaurant inside of a hotel building can act and feel like a street-facing restaurant, right? And the moment that you try to make something that really doesn't have the characteristics of a street-facing restaurant, try to be one, you're going to lose money, right? That doesn't mean that you won't, won't bring the public in, but you're not going to spend the same amount of time, effort, and resources to be able to drive local traffic. So you do have to pick and choose. And so we have, we have, we've created... We've put in a lot of resources in the fundamentals of particularly banquet and catering to do that exceptionally well because we do a ton of group business. We have a chef council, which has been great to sh share culinary you know, capabilities and playbook. We just launched. What's that? So it's a, a council of, I think we have about eight chefs across the portfolio uh, that help with task force, help with anything related to menu and banquet planning help with sharing best practices it's it's been it's been hugely valuable because it's hard to find at least in my experience it's hard to find a chef a, a, a true chef who wants to be a corporate person 
very hard person to find. We've had one in our 45-year history who's amazing and unfortunately passed away while, while still working with us. And we named our culinary award after him. But that's a very hard person to find. So being able to bring those people in and out of, right, they're still property-based, but they're able to, to share and act like a corporate you know, culinary group, that's been hugely helpful. And then our, our senior VP of food and beverage, Patrick Burwald, is about two years ago launched Purple Mint within the company. And it is our, our own concepting, right, research, menu design, right, all of the things that are required to get a freestanding F&B restaurant going. We have a full team and it's not just us. We have a lot of third parties that we use, but it's a full suite of services so that we are... We're not always going to the outside, which we were doing when we were smaller. We just, we didn't have the resources. So having that upfront concepting, menu planning, right? Doing the local research has been a huge benefit to us. And really Patrick brought that skill set to the table. So that leads me to, into something interesting because this is always something that I used to struggle with. And now I kind of don't really get too worried about it, but that's fees and costs that we bill back from a corporate level, whether it's on the investment side or the management side to the, the property level. And my thinking now is really, if we're providing a service that if we didn't provide, we'd have to go hire someone else to do and we'd pay them a fee, then we should be charging for that work because it really costs us to do that. And, and I'm curious to know, now that you have this big company, 250 hotels, what kind of, that was one example, which is super cool. Like what other central services are you doing? And presumably all that is getting paid for by the properties or, or most of it. So the only two truly, truly central that I would you know characterize in that way is, is our, we have a reservations team, which legacy benchmark created probably seven years ago at the time our reasoning was for any for any we had already gone through in the individual reservation teams and then all the technology to to connect them right so we'd already done all of that and the software to understand and to uh, potentially use pods right regional pods we'd already done all of that but then we always had the rollover that would go to a third party and we had great third-party relationships. We still have third-party relationships today. But the thought was, you know, if we could do this ourselves, we could more than likely beat the metrics, right, that, that we see in the third-party world if it was our team trained by our people. So it took us a long time to get there. But that team today, and, and, and it's opt-in. It is not a requirement. Our properties have to believe in it. They ha we have to sell it. And it's, of course, it's for independent properties, not for branded properties. But that team crushes it, absolutely crushes it. Their conversion rates are double the, the outside third parties. We're in the high 30s, low 40s. The average, the average rate, oh my God, it's just like they, they're just, they're, they're specialists. They're, they're, we, we gave them all the technology and all the resources to do all the things that you typically don't get in a call center. They're fully educated. They have all the right resources. They have personal phone numbers. 
they have follow-up and we have all the metrics to track their success. It's one of my favorite places. Well, it used to be one of my favorite places to go in our office. It's gone remote after COVID, which our team loves. I hate it. Not because I don't like, not because I, I want them back because it's been great for them, but because I used to love to just go there. Right. And just because we were making money in that room and, and we were serving customers in that room. So I always just liked being with that team. I still attend their, you know, the, every, every once in a while, one of their trainings on Sunday, just to, just to get to see the team, but they've done a great job. And then with our merger, we launched a central accounting platform, which was really at a necessity on the pyramid organization because they were with a third party who wasn't really keeping up and frustrating the organization. So that was a necessity on their side. And we have, we, but we strategically through the merger, because that was happening almost exactly at the same time that we were doing our merger, uh, we strategically said, much like some of the other conversations, we're in a labor constrained environment and costs are going up. We need to be able to provide platforms that can reduce the exposure and cost at the property level, non-negotiable. So we use that as an advantage to be able to plan here in Houston to grow a central accounting team. But again, we're rolling that out, right, as we get stable because we want it to be best in class. Our goal is for it to be everything that you don't expect from a central accounting team and everything that you do expect. That there needs so to are you basically pulling out all accounting functions outside of a hotel and putting them central? No, depends or on will the a hotel still have, okay. Depends on the property and the size and the needs and owners, right? It definitely depends on each situation. So it's very custom. I mean, a lot of our larger properties still have a controller. Right. Especially the, yeah. I mean, it's it's tough. Accounting is just so hard to find people right now. Are you looking overseas for talent as well? Or is everyone essentially based in Houston? Not currently. We do have some remote as we've built out the team, but Look, we're, we're very fortunate in Houston to have a very, very good population and a very good educated base. It, it's one of the reasons we picked Houston, not only just lower cost of living and larger MSA to, to recruit from versus putting this you know, in Boston. If it were in our Boston office, we chose here for that very reason. Uh, won't say it's been hard, but we've I think we've recruited in the last 18 months, 60 to 80 people. And our turnover has been less than 10%. I want to touch on one last place. And that is now that you are leading such a big organization, how are you thinking about your meetings, your leadership interaction with your team? Who are you meeting with? And what's the cadence look like there so that you have not only the pulse of the company, the organization, but also the pulse of your assets and your hotels? Yeah, so we, we are for, uh, fortunate to have regular, regular monthly communications that, that you're able to join to kind of get a sense of what's going on in the business, right? And that's been a cadence that both organizations had and we've continued so I don't find that any any point in time I find out that something's happening that I'm unaware of. I mean, yes, there might be something small, but you know, or a GM vacancy that I may know less about. But typically on those calls, all of those issues are coming up. I'm a I'm a huge fan of our board meetings, as much as board meetings don't mean anything to our individual employees. The reality is that's where we're thinking and we're strategizing and we're planning and we're 
and we're, you know, we're holding ourselves accountable to things that we want to get better, right? So that always, I always get a lot of energy out of that because we do report on employee satisfaction surveys. We report on any of our guest satisfaction issues, particularly those that are franchise related. We're reporting on the performance of our properties. And although I'm not a huge fan of roll-up reports, it does give you a sense and a pulse of where things are going, particularly the employee survey piece. Because that that I will dig in on. I will I will read all forty five pages, right, and all the commentary associated with it to be able to get a sense for what's going on. My favorite thing to do is go visit properties, and if I'm traveling, when I'm traveling, I'll always just say, "Hey, I'm in town. Want to come? Just say hello." I don't like the pomp and circumstance of a visit, which sometimes happens, but I'd rather in the hotel world. That's a big thing. I remember. Bill Marriott visited our hotel and there's a whole pomp and circumstance show that gets put on. So you're a little bit more low key, you kind of slip in the back door. And- well, not, you know, I don't like to slip in the back door necessarily. I, I like to notify the team, but I just want to, I just want to go, I just want to go walk the property, get to know the team, maybe take them out to dinner, maybe have, you know, a little happy hour, but it, it does, I don't know. It comes with the territory. I get it. I appreciate it. It's, it's humbling. And at the same time, I'm not that important. I'm just not like nobody should be stopping their work because I showed up, but I don't want to not be available because if people want to meet me because they think that's important, great. That's awesome. I love to meet them. Right. So it's, it's always interesting, but it also is just very grounding. It's just the reality of it's very grounding. I have to get past the pump and circumstance. If it happens, then it's just hang out in the bar, hang out in the employee cafeteria, just see the team you know, and get to meet people and hear their stories. And there's never a property visit I don't walk away from inspired and and really knowing what's going on in the organization day to day, right? And my door's always open, Jake. That's, you know, people say that, but, you know, I, I've had, I had one of our junior accounting people come and talk to me about a, a business development deal in his native country of Cameroon two weeks ago. Now, there's no way we're going there, unfortunately. But <laughs> the fact that he felt like he had the right and the privilege to come into my office and not think, oh, I'm not going to go to the, you know, I'm not going to go to the senior leadership with this. I love that. I love that. And so, you know, you have to exude that behavior for people to be willing to come in and say, well, something's going wrong or something's going great or here's just an idea. Right. One of our IT guys came in and just wanted career advice. I want to do more. And where should I raise my hand? And how should I do that? Now, there's two other people before me that he could have done that to, but it didn't matter to him. He just came in and said hello and great, you know? So I love that kind of stuff because that, that really gives you a pulse beyond the reports and everything else and meetings that we, that we do. So you've said it all. I have one traditional closing question that I always ask my guests, and that is, doesn't have to be in your own portfolio, but what is your favorite hotel? Oh, man, I always get that question and I never have a really great. I know. Answer. It's the worst, right? It is and the worst. I just love putting people seen, on the spot. Yeah. Seen a lot. Um, so I, I will just, I will just say, I will say within the portfolio, because when I get asked that question within the portfolio, I always say Willow's Lodge in Woodenville outside of Seattle, 87 rooms, we do 13 million of food and beverage on 87 rooms. And I just, I love the setting, the natural setting, the Northwest architecture, just the intimacy. 
For me, it helps that I also know that team well. It was part of one of our acquisitions in 2011. So I just know the team. And so when I'm there, while there's a lot of employees day to day, I might not know that I know the leadership team. And so we, I can just enjoy it. I can have fun. I can take my wife there. I have a really hard time taking my family or my wife or to any one of our properties. Because if they know uh, I'm there, yep. then it's a bunch of just hoo-ha. And I'm like, I don't want any of that. Yep. And then if they don't know I'm there, then I'm not sure if I should say anything. And then if something's wrong, forget it. I can't focus. I can't have any. It's just, I just, yeah. Can't it's do it. tough. Can't do it. I have lots of, it's ba- tough. I have lots I feel of bad your pain. stories of, of people attempting to take over, over care that I'm there. And then it creates issues. I'm just like, I, I just can't do it. So I, I, you know, you and I, you and I just call each other and we, we stay at each other's properties. That's it. A hundred percent. That's why we all have friends in the hotel business. So we could take our families to somewhere that's not in our portfolio. That's the dream. And for those that don't know, 13 million in food and beverage on 87 rooms is insane, wild. Is that coming from restaurant and mostly events or restaurant and events? Yeah, it's crazy. Property crushes it. The Barking Frog. Crushed it. Amazing. Great, great restaurant. We ended up expanding it into the lobby of the of the hotel building because we just didn't have any more room. Wow. I love it. Thanks for joining me. This was an awesome conversation. Appreciate you. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it, bud. Hey, everyone. It's Jake here. Thanks again for joining me on this conversation. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube. Lastly, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at jwerzak. I'll see you in the next episode. Jake Warzak is the founder and CEO of Dove Hill Capital Management. All opinions expressed by Jake and his guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Dove Hill Capital Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not reflect or represent real estate, financial, or investment advice. Mm-hmm.